Welcome once again to Watershed Writers, the radio documentary series and podcast that features writers creating literature in the Grand River region in southwestern Ontario. We record on the traditional territories of the neutral Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples, and we are dedicated to bringing you stories about writers from diverse backgrounds. On this program, we read books written by local writers, and we talk about all kinds of subjects. Our slogan is, listen local, think global. This is season three of Watershed Writers. I am your host, Tannis McDonald. Francis Roberts Riley keeps our feet on the ground as the show's producer, and John Roscoe serves as our technical director and promotion specialist. We are very happily partnered with the wonderful folks at Midtown Radio in Kitchener-Waterloo, And you can also catch past episodes, including all of Seasons 1 and 2, on the Watershed Writers account on SoundCloud or on Spotify. Our guest for this episode is Kitchener novelist and scholar Benjamin Lefebvre, whose first novel, In the Key of Dale, was published by Arsenal Pulp Press in Vancouver. The book is drawing good reviews from all around. The novel tells the story of a queer 16-year-old musical prodigy who starts writing letters to his late father. And the novel's been recorded as an audiobook by performer Michael Crouch and is forthcoming in a translation into Italian. But In the Key of Dale takes place in Waterloo, with an occasional side trip to Guelph, so it's as local as it gets. Benjamin Lefebvre grew up in Montreal, but he has made his home in Kitchener-Waterloo for many years. He's taught at Wilfrid Laurier University and at the University of Waterloo, where he now works in the Centre for Extended Learning. Benjamin is an expert on the works of Lucy Maud Montgomery, and his edited books include The L. M. Montgomery Reader, which won the 2016 Prose Award for Literature from the Association of American Publishers, as well as an edition of Montgomery's rediscovered final book, The Blythes Are Quoted. He has published short stories in Plenitude magazine and in the Antigonish Review, and In the Key of Dale is his first novel. Welcome, Benjamin, to Watershed Writers. Thanks very much for having me, Tannis. Well, it's a pleasure. It's been a pleasure reading your book in the key of Dale. And you can see, our listeners can't see, but you can see that I have it heavily tape flagged with all the things (laughs) I want to ask you about it. This is your first book, and I want to know a little bit about how you arrived at it. Because a first book is a, a major endeavor. And in some ways, you know, we're often feeling our way and thinking, is this a thing? Is this a book? So can you tell us a little bit about how this book was developed, how you got the idea for it. Yeah, and not just the genesis, but how you developed it. Well, the backstory is that although this is my first book, it's technically my first published novel. Uh, There have been many more preceding it that um, are now in a series of banker's boxes in my basement and (laughs) and in all likelihood will never see the light light of day and kind of proto projects. And, And they go back quite a long time because I've been writing fiction since I was 11. 
And so in a sense, this book kind of becomes a culmination of everything I learned about fiction writing as a result of writing all of those earlier attempts. And also as a result of everything that I learned through my academic training in English, this particular book began in part because I had been working doggedly on multiple iterations of an earlier novel that just weren't working, but there was the Aries streak in me that for the longest time refused to admit that I could not really whip this into shape, and that this project had served its purpose in terms of learning and in terms of getting better at writing and pacing and dialogue and plot and all of those things. And it was time for something new. So finally, I started thinking about different ideas about a novel. And there were a number of things that I knew that I did not want to write about, or there are a number of patterns I did not want to replicate. Basically, how it started is I was standing in an airport waiting to board a flight, and four different excerpts popped into my head. And thankfully, because I've been writing that for so long, I, I know to carry a notebook with me. So I wrote them down. Fortunately for me, uh, because of the, this was the beginning of this, I wrote down the date. And I, I, and I remember exactly where I was. Usually, you can't really pinpoint where a story started. But in this case, uh, quite fortuitously, I can. And those are the four short attempts at the beginning of the novel where Dale starts writing to a pen pal and that's not working. And then he writes to a diary and that's not working. And then he starts writing, you know, a paragraph of fiction about himself in third person and that's not working either. And then are you there, God? Oh, forget it. And then it was like, okay, so I have the beginnings of a voice. I had the beginnings of a conflict. I, I think I had the name Dale at that point, but I didn't really know what else was there. I had to, you know, do what most writers do and play that game of what if, you know, what if this happened? What if that happened? Uh, what if his father was dead? And what if there was something else to discover? And what if he was queer, but this wasn't really about coming out? What if he saw himself as really melancholy, but he says like really funny things and doesn't seem to really realize how funny he can be? That's kind of how it developed. And oddly enough, given how usually I write very slowly because I edit as I go somewhat obsessively, and that does create problems because the more that I edit, the more reluctant I am to say, you know what, I don't think I need this section at all because I've, I've edited it so much. And it, it means I, I progress really slowly. In this case, I wrote the, the first draft fairly quickly, like about nine, 10 months. But then it took a long time to revise and send it out and find the right people. Um, it was a 10-year process, but the writing of it happened pretty quickly because the pieces just fell into place and I knew what I was, where I was going, but there was still enough to discover uh, in the writing process about Dale and about what was going to happen to him and all the conflicts. I always think it's instructive to hear um, not only about that flash of inspiration, but about the time it takes to develop, right? Um, because I, I know many of our listeners um, are interested in the process and many people think it takes six months to write a book. Many people think it takes 60 years to write a book. And so, uh, of course, the truth is some, uh, somewhere in between. Once I was at Banff and uh, Mary Walsh was there at the same time, I sat with her and, and had lunch and she said to me, I have been working on this novel for four years. Can you believe it? 
four years. And I had to say, I, you know, to me, that's, that's actually not that long. That's kind of a, <laughs> a blistering pace. And she said, well, for her, she was used to writing a comedy sketch in, in uh, 15 minutes. And so that was her standard, right? Yeah. So it depends what we, you know, what we think of, you know, in terms of what, how much time we're devoting to it and how much, um, how things develop. So, and you were given a boost by the Sarah Selecki Writing School. And was that in fall 2020? Yeah, that was in fall 2020. And I took that course because this particular novel, I had sent it out, I had revised it. I mean, the, the, the one thing that can be instructive for aspiring writers to hear and, and even, even more established writers is finding an editor and finding an agent. It's a lot like dating. Yes, there are some people who are objectively super hot and everyone wants to go out with them. <laughs> But for the rest of us, sometimes it just it takes a while before you find someone that you click with. And you, if you don't find somebody you click with, that doesn't mean that you're undateable. It just means that you haven't found somebody where that where it clicks and it has to be it has to be mutual. I had submitted this novel to everyone I could I could think of. And I got a few n nice comments back, but I thought, well, I guess I've done what I can. I decided I needed a boost. I needed to just kind of do something new and so fall 2020, that was the start of the pandemic. And I thought, well, this is a way of finding community at a time when that's, you know, physically next to impossible. I learned so much about writing fiction, especially about writing short fiction. Part of my downfall as a writer, I think, was that from the age of 11, I always saw the novel as my medium. And that became a problem because, you know, it takes a long time to finish a novel and it also is takes a long time to submit it and find people who are willing to read it because of the length but i, I just couldn't really get the hang of short stories for some reason the sarah selecki course uh, which i highly recommend to anyone looking for uh, just a way to just kind of jumpstart your your creative process uh, it taught me a lot about discovering a story rather than having to figure it out ahead of time and pacing and dialogue and ambiguity. You know, I wrote some short stories and started sending them out. And then I went back to the novel and I, and I thought, okay, well, I still like this. So now that I've sent it out to everybody, what could I do differently? And I ended up making some very specific changes um, it basically, the Sarah Selecki course kind of gave me a boost of confidence as well in terms of thinking there's, there's something here and I, I kind of need to just keep trying. Then I did. And I found an agent after that. And then, uh, the agent submitted it to several dozen editors and one took it and it was Arsenal Pulp Press. And I was very happy to be published by them because they're just such an amazing press. They're an amazing group of people to work with. That's Arsenal Pulp Press in Vancouver. And of course, a kind of institution in Vancouver uh, for publishing wonderful books and being very supportive of authors. So that's a very good place to land. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the book itself. So it's called In the Key of Dale. And it's called a, a YA novel, although I've also also heard you talk a little bit about the fact that not all YA readers are are young adults. Some are fully <laughs> grown adults, and I'm interested in hearing a little bit about that. But let's let's talk about Dale himself for a bit. He's a musical prodigy, right? As we get in this uh, in the title, and his confidence about his musical abilities is really a, a like a major component in the book. 
And can you talk about a little bit about your background in music and how you infuse the novel with it? Like Dale, I attended a music intensive elementary school for a number of years. And so I learned to read music. I sang in choirs. We recorded uh, a CD of Gabriel Faure's Requiem, which features in the novel. And of course, in those days, CDs were such a new technology and we didn't own the CD player. So I we bought a copy of it, but it just kind of sat there until <laughs> until we finally got, got rid of our turntable and, our, and, uh, and, and upgraded to the new technology. I learned to play the piano and I, you know, I learned, learned music theory, but um, I, I was nowhere near Dale's. There's no way that I, I would ever inherit, achieve Dale's uh, level of proficiency. Like, okay, you know, he's a music prodigy, whatever. I didn't really realize or, or see concretely what that meant until one of the revisions I made much, much later was I thought that the, the novel needed a stronger inciting incident. And so I added the part about him going to the city to do his Royal Conservatory exam. So to try to figure out, well, what would the repertoire be? I, you know, everything's online these days. So I went online and downloaded the repertoire and looked it up on YouTube. So a lot of things that you can see, you know, the score and then you can hear it. And I'm looking at this like, wow, he's good. I had no idea he, he was this good. Like, I, I <laughs> like this is such high caliber. I had I, I really I couldn't see it quite that clearly until that moment. And of course, I also realized that yeah, I could I could never, ever, ever learn to play any of this ever, even if I practiced for the rest of my life. There's just absolutely no way. So music has always been part of my life. And so that was it was so it was very easy to to get to share that with Dale and include that in the novel. But I made him a prodigy as a way of making him stand out um, among his peers and as a way of kind of creating conflict because I, I realized too once I saw how absolutely complex the work that he was working on uh, for the exam really was. I kind of understood his mother too, because his, so one of the conflicts of the novel is that his mother really has no idea how talented he is. Like, oh, this is a fun pastime to have while you're a kid. And I thought, well, if Sheeta has no training herself in music, and she's just used to it being there because Dale has always played music, then of course you wouldn't really realize like, yeah, this is really unusual that, that a 16 year old is playing to that level because for her, it's just, it's just there in the house. It's, it's normal like that. It's so that the bar for her is just, you know, that's, that's just what music is. So I, I kind of saw that as a, as a way of creating conflict, especially in, in a case where people had different percep perceptions about what this is and what role it plays. And, and uh, so I thought that would be fun as a conflict because you're approaching the conflict from very, very different um, perspectives. You know, for me as a reader, it was really important that he, uh, not only that he was uh, very proficient, but also that he was really confident about that proficiency. And when he begins to impress other people with his musicianship, it was, it's a great thing to see, to see that, that kind of confidence. And I really liked it in contrast to sometimes you read a YA novel and the protagonist is proficient, but not confident at all, right? Mm -hmm. It has to be convinced by others. But here it was the mother that needed to be convinced by other adults uh, that Dale is, uh, is kind of a, a wunderkind, right? So we have that and we have his, his confidence in his musical ability 
And there's something else going on, of course. He launches a campaign at school to never speak aloud because he hates his, his school so much. But the narrative we hear him retelling his days through the letters that he writes to his father. Yeah. Um, so the epistolary novel lives. It lives <laughs> in the 21st century. <laughs> and I was glad to see your reference to Judy Bloom's are you there, God? It's me, Margaret, at the at the very beginning, uh, working out who's going to be the proper recipient of his story of his days, right? And so I was uh, I was intrigued that he chose his father, and I was intrigued that it became uh, letters because there's other forms of communication suffused throughout the novel. We've got the the music. We also have the the hilarious lists of uh, unlikely band names, etc. The the texts exchanged by uh, Dale and his crush Rusty. So tell me about how you arrived at the epistolary novel. I have all kinds of thoughts about why letters and why to his father, but I think I want to hear a little bit about it from you first. Part of it was just trying to figure out like what would be an interesting way of telling a story. Right. Because what usually when you have a first person narrator, that the conceit of fiction is that you don't they're just narrating and like, well, when are they narrating and to whom are they narrating? Well, that doesn't really that doesn't really matter. They're just narrating and it's fine. Either it's, you know, they're narrating things as they're happening, which is kind of impossible. That's that's the fun of fiction is that it's it's impossible, yet you roll with it or they're narrating what happened recently or what happened a long time ago and from the perspective of being much, much older. So I thought, well, what would it be like to have somebody narrating in immediate retrospect as things are happening? He knows what has just happened, and he can reflect on that, but he doesn't know what's going to happen next. And so that was part of it. The other side of it for me personally is that my own father had died about four years before I started writing the novel. And although I... I quickly saw that I wasn't all that interested in in writing about, I didn't, I, I didn't feel the need to write about him or about me or our relationship. My father died under very different circumstances when I was 31. But so part of the, the writing process was kind of taking that own experience and then thinking, okay, well, what if this happened to someone who was nine when his father died? And what if he died very differently? And what if you know, at 16, there was lots of questions still. In other words, what if it was more complicated for, for someone else? So I was interested at that point in thinking about the long-term effect of grief, right? So at once you're beyond the immediate shock and the funeral and all of that, and you've kind of ostensibly moved on, but there's still something there because I personally don't believe that grief ever goes away. It just becomes more manageable right? You continue to carry your losses with you. But even if you're ostensibly okay, you're, you're still carrying those losses with you. I was also interested in Dale possibly developing a relationship with his father through writing letters. So for me, this was the only way that the story could be told. Especially when a parent dies, there's a whole kind of negotiation uh, I know for me, when, when my father died, uh, one of the things I thought was, now I have to live the rest of my life without a father. Mm -hmm. Like, how do I do that? It was certainly grief, but it was also, it was a problem. I had to like think on it, yeah. you know, like, what do I, how do I operate in the world if he's not there? Right. And so that's what you said, just reminded me of that kind of negotiation that would be even more intense if, and I too was an adult when my, when my father passed away and uh, I was starkly reminded of uh, all the friends I had who had lost a parent when young. And I thought, how did they do that? Yeah. Like I'm barely managing and I'm yeah. 40, right? Yeah. How did they do that when, when they were 10 and 12 and 15? 
so yeah, so I, I really liked this idea of redevelops his relationship to, uh, to his father through these letters that he writes him about how he decides to, to live his days. Yeah. Back to this thing about uh, never speaking aloud. You know, it's an interesting kind of uh, thing to look at because the choice for Dale to never speak aloud at school has something to do with A, his grief, B, the fact that he decides before he even meets them that he doesn't like his classmates. Is it fair to say that it's also because he identifies as queer as an early age and absolutely does not want that to be uh, something that is talked about in school? I hadn't consciously thought of that, but that seems plausible. What Dale says is that he was picked on a lot at his old school and he just didn't want that to keep happening. So it just seemed like if I just refuse to engage at all, then then they can't really pick on me. I took a lot of this out. In the first draft, there, were, there was a lot of backstory and, and, and it kind of felt it makes sense. Like, well, you've been dead for seven years, so I kind of need to bring you up to speed. But I ended up clawing back on a lot of that because it just it just seemed like filler. But one thing that I kept is there's a there's a mention of Dale's stepbrother, who is the same age and in the same class, uh, saying to him on their way to the bus, yeah, I think it might be better if we just pretend we don't know each other. And I think that's part of what what triggered this decision. It's just like, okay, so if you you don't even want to acknowledge that we're related to each other, then screw this. I'm done with high school. But yeah, it's um, before they get there. Yeah, and the amount of control that Dale wants to have over his environment is mm -hmm. considerable, right? Yeah. And it comes down to, and you know, the music he makes, he makes by himself, right? Uh, to the point where he even, you know, has these digital manipulations of the music, reproducing his own voice, uh, singing backup, etc. And while that's absolutely an acceptable way to make music, it, he does take it to extremes, right? Where he plays all the instruments and he sings all the backup. And at one point I thought, gee, Dale, you could find someone to play the music with you, but it's very clear that that is certainly his his creative control and also his, his social control as well. Yeah, sometimes I wonder how much of that is informed by the loss of his father and how much of it is just him being such a perfectionist. But also, I mean, if you're not really talking to anybody, how are you, how are you supposed to find yeah. people to collaborate with? And his one musical friend has moved away as well. So there's that. It's not like he n never had musical friends. He just yeah. doesn't have them at his high school at this time in his life. Yeah. Um, I have to ask, your protagonist's name is Dale Cardigan. Mm -hmm. Is that a pun on Dale Carnegie, or is that just me? No, that, that wasn't what, anything I thought of. I know about the book, How to Make Friends, or whatever it's called, but I hadn't thought of that. I named him Cardigan mainly because I like wearing cardigans, and I thought that, <laughs> that would be a fun... A fun, a fun way to, uh, to, to, for him to embody that. Literally, <laughs> not literally, but for that to be part of the the story. I hadn't consciously remembered that the author of that book was named Dale Carnegie. It was, I, it must have been in the back of my mind. So, so who knows? Well, it's just that it's an ironic counterpoint to how to make friends and influence people, because yeah. of course Dale doesn't want to make friends, and maybe he wants to influence people with his genius, but he certainly—it's certainly not in order to uh, to have relationships. But they happen, you know, despite him, right? Yeah. So uh, one of the things that Quill and Choir, whoever was reviewing for Quill and Choir, said that Dale has an interior life that is rich and relatably realized, which I, I thought was a, a great thing, and. Offering this book that is an interior life of a 16-year-old boy that 
opens up that uh, idea of always wanting to be alone and not wanting to speak and keeping closely guarded secrets, despite the fact he's clear about his queerness and confident that this is like a big part of his identity. What are the challenges of writing that kind of interior life? I mean, of course, one of the challenges is that you have to find a way to, to talk about it, and that was the, uh, the letters to his father. But what were the other challenges of working so intensely on someone who spends so much time in his head? Well, the big challenge is that if you want the protagonist to grow, and this isn't just, you know, YA or like in any work of fiction, like you, you characters need to evolve, like because otherwise, I mean, most of the time, like you know, a character needs to evolve. So, part of the challenge is figuring out well, what does that evolution look like? If he starts finding people to confide in about his problems, then what does that mean for the novel? Like, what does that mean for how much he tells um, his father and the choices that he makes? Because I think it's pretty clear that he realizes after a while that that although these letters are addressed to his father, that this is basically for his own benefit. And there are points in the story where he admits, like, I, I cannot write about this in a letter addressed to my father. I know he's dead, and I know this is only for, really only for me, but I just I can't. I can't do it. So, yeah, the, the challenge is figuring out what would it look like as Dale starts to evolve, and, and not just how conscious is Dale of that evolution as it's happening. Right, and how to kind of show those shifts in, in subtle enough ways to make sure that there, there is some growth, that we can see some growth in him. There's a moment that I tape flagged where he, he said, you know, all along I thought that my classmates were jerks, but I'm starting to think it might be me. <laughs> he says this. I think he says it to his uncles. And I have to say, I laughed aloud because this idea of it might be me <laughs> was just killed me as a moment of self-revelation, right? <laughs> and on that, I think I'm going to ask you to, to read a little bit from In the Key of Dale for us. Sure. So this is a scene where Dale and his friend slash potential love interest um, have been invited by Dale's two uncles out for Dale's birthday. So this follows Dale's mother being so enthusiastic about this that she kind of acts like this is a prom and starts taking like, you know, all these pictures on a digital camera. So here, Dale and Rusty and, and Dale's uncles are in the car. And the dynamic is that he's noticing that there's something a little bit odd going on with his uncles, but he can't really put his finger on it. And then, of course, there's the fact that he, he is aware that he is interested in the guy next, sitting next to him, but that's as, about as far as that goes. Then Uncle Scott turned around in his seat to look at us. What kind of food are you boys in the mood for? There's a great Thai restaurant that we like to go to. Or there's that new Egyptian-Moroccan-English fusion place that seems promising. Is that the one that's attached to the mall without being in the mall, Joe? Uncle Joe responded by turning on the stereo. He was playing a choral piece that erupted into the most climactic moment. I think it was something my handle. And then, after a quick wrap-up and a pause, the choir launched into what was clearly the third movement of something epic. Um... Either one would be fine, I called out over the sound of 200 people singing at the tops of their voices. Right, Rusty? Yeah, sounds great. Uncle Scott turned his head and nodded before falling silent. I couldn't understand what was going on. 
When I turned in Rusty's direction, he leaned over and said, low enough not to be overheard, why does everyone keep calling us you boys? Your mother did it 10 times during that photo shoot. And what was up with that photo shoot? He looked so appealingly earnest, and I felt so comfortable being that close to him that I unleashed the truth without running it through the filter first. Yeah, sorry about that. It looks like my whole family thinks we're dating. What happened next took about two seconds to happen, but we'll, we'll need several sentences to describe. First, Rusty broke into a smile, chuckled, and nudged my hand with his knuckles, as though the idea of us dating was hysterical. But then his smile faded, and he gazed into the middle distance, looking increasingly puzzled. He started to say something, then stopped himself, looked back at my two uncles, glanced at me again, and then turned right around to look determinedly out the window, like I do whenever I'm in the car with Ma. And throughout all this was the sound of a shitload of people singing their devotion to a god that probably none of them believed in. Thank you. Sorry, try not to laugh while you're reading. <laughs> and you just about got me with the with the description of the fusion place. Yeah. Um, <laughs> okay, um, but I'm glad you read that uh, that piece because one of the fascinating things here and something I really enjoyed was the way you reconfigured the coming out story. Mm -hmm. And so it's the adults that are interested in Dale coming out much more and seems like they're much more invested in it than than he is. Um, so he has this pair of uncles. He's got a, a lesbian couple friend at the church who uh, hire him to do the music at their wedding. And uh, and his mother seems uh, very queer positive as well. Yeah. Right? So so the scene with the taking the pictures and you boys, I think is fascinating for how it subverts some of the narratives of it's going to be so terrible when I come out, right? Yeah. It's going to be so rough on my family when I come out. So what sparked you to to take up that particular way of, yeah, turning the coming out story on its head? Part of it is that I was just kind of getting tired of reading the same story over and over and over again, where, oh, what are these weird feelings I have? And, oh, maybe this, or, oh, I don't know what's going on here. And then your character goes through the ringer and then, aha, yay, I'm coming out and hugs, you know, hugs are shared. And, and like, that's been done and that's fine. But I didn't find that particular story that interesting. One of the reasons I read that extract is that that moment of, yeah, I think our whole family thinks we're dating. And then Rusty's reaction. I went back several times and, and rethought that reaction because people who read earlier versions said, well, it's pretty obvious that Rusty likes Dale back. And I'm like, well, how can it not be obvious? Like, if you think about what other romantic potential is there, every other character is either related to Dale, like there's no other potential love interest, of course it's obvious. So I, I rethought what that would mean for, you know, Rusty's journey as well and what he's not saying. But yeah, part of it was, of course, it's, to me, it's, of course it's obvious that Rusty is going to be the, the love interest because that's the, the nature of the genre. But I wanted to avoid, yeah, those old patterns. I mean, if you have queer uncles, like this isn't gonna be a shock anymore. Like, what do you mean? Like, no, I mean, it, it's like, it's whatever journey people have to go on, like acceptance of other people like that, that's already happened. But Dale's resistance to coming out, to me, that just seemed so in keeping with, with his personality. 
Yes, yeah, but I, I thought it was important that, yeah, that, that was about his personality and not necessarily about confusion about his sexuality. I mean, mm. and, and I think that's very different. I mean, those, those are very different reasons. You're listening to Watershed Writers on Midtown Radio KW, your hyper-local community radio station and podcast. You can listen to Watershed Writers podcasts on streaming platforms like SoundCloud, where episodes from seasons one, two, and three are now available for online listening. This season, we've added Spotify as a new streaming service, and you can catch up on more than 20 great episodes talking with writers from the Grand River region in southwestern Ontario. That's Watershed Writers Podcasts on SoundCloud and Spotify, where you can listen local, anywhere, anytime. Now back to Benjamin LeFay. So I'm reading along in in the Key of Dale, and I was wondering how much you were going to write into the sexual attraction between the two young men. Yeah. Um, and was that a decision that you made in the early stages, or did it take some time to choose both what you were going to write and how you were going to write it? Well, that's actually one of the changes that I made when I went back at the end of 2020 and said, okay, look, what else could I do with this? The initial version was a lot more PG-13 and was a lot more deliberately YA friendly. And so in that version, the sexual experience that, that happens unexpectedly, that Dale kind of likens a tripping on a branch, um, that, that doesn't happen. And instead, you know, they kiss and that's about it. And it's like, yay, we're together, yay. Actually, in, in, the, the, in that version, Dale does come out to his mother at the end. And I thought, I'm doing this because that's what's expected of the genre, but it's not in keeping with the character. But because Dale is, is narrating all this in letters to his father, like that was an easy way initially of saying, well, he can't talk about sexual desire in a letter addressed to his father, like that, that, that just cannot happen. So when, when Dale talks about like, oh, it's great that I could be more or less truthful than these letters. I mean, yeah, there's a lot that he can't, he can't talk about. So I, I ended up trying to figure out a way to get around that in order to be able to narrate this. I was a little bit worried though, because by going with something that I think is more realistic, I was worried about how this would be received because, you know, a sex scene involving two people who are in a relationship, that is more expected. But at this point, they're friends and they just like, hey, do you want to fool around a little bit? And we'll, we'll figure out what this means later. I, I was a little bit worried. Although I, I say this, uh, but compared to everything else that Arsenal Paul publishes, I did find that these new scenes were were pretty tame. So maybe I'm worrying for nothing. Well, but it's also something I and mean, you see in you know, I brought up Judy Bloom before and mm -hmm. she I think she's been important to a generation or maybe two generations of um young readers who appreciated her frankness yeah. uh, in uh, writing about heterosexual um sexuality. So I think really, you know, yeah, the time has come right. you know, clearly, right? Now, uh, can you talk a little bit about queer or YA literature writers who you admire and wanted to sort of reach towards uh, with a book like this? 
as part of my academic training, I ended up doing like I, I specialized in Canadian literature from both of my graduate degrees, and but I I ended up developing you know interest in in, in children's literature as well, particularly uh, young adult literature, and part of that was. I read two novels and I, I published an article about this because I was so angry about them. So two Canadian young adult novels where the protagonist was straight and the so-called social problem that has to be dealt with is the discovery that his best friend is gay. And in one in one case, the, the friendship is it's like, you know, way to go, but we're, we can't be friends anymore because how could we be friends still? And then it's in the second one, the uh, the best friend dies as a result of some random accident that the protagonist was actually indirectly responsible for, but doesn't actually see. And part of me thought, okay, I'm I'm being manipulated into accepting these outcomes as okay or reasonable. And I started wondering, well, how does this work where, you know, like you mentioned Judy Bloom. Most people, when they think about, well, I don't know most people, but when, when, when I was teaching children's literature and I would ask my students, you know, how many of you read Judy Bloom and how much, what do you remember about her books? They remember the problems, the scoliosis book, the father dies in a shootout book. Uh, you know, I'm getting my first period book, the uh, the divorce book. They don't remember the characters. They don't remember the story. They remember the social problem that's being dealt with. And I ended up going back and rereading a bunch of YA novels, and I was interested in how social problems are dealt with. And so, and as a result of teaching young adult literature a lot and, and kind of firming this, uh, firming up this idea of this is what the genre does. It, it broaches problems. Like it's like a, an episode of Degrassi. They they pick a problem that real teenagers are facing and they put on a little play to talk about it, right? So the, the story and the character and the characters and the relationships are secondary to the problem. So one novel that I read that really changed that for me in terms of the perception of YA as issue-based uh, was John Green's first novel, An Abundance of Catherines. So John Green is best known now for Fault in Our Stars and Paper Towns. So these these books, The Fault in Our Stars was a major movie. But his first novel, what I loved about it was it didn't try to preach about anything. It didn't wasn't trying to solve a problem. It was just, here is a story about a character who has dated 18 girls named Catherine, with a K. And that was so refreshing to me that, okay, it can be about storytelling. It can be about developing a character. And so that way of thinking is what ultimately inspired me to go back to my manuscript and take out all those parts that I thought, oh, this is what the genre expects, or this is maybe what teenagers need. How the hell should I know what teenagers need? I don't know. <laughs> and, and I just replaced that with what it will be true to the character. And so... I think that ended up making it a better novel, even though it is being published as as YA. You know, you mentioned earlier that there are now more adults than actual teenagers buying young adult fiction. And I find the term YA very misleading anyway, because young adults are 18 to 25 demographically. Young adult literature is from 12 to 18-year-olds, I guess for teenagers. Teenagers are not young adults, but anyway... The, these categories just get really fluid and, and kind of used interchangeably. Um, there are tons of adults reading books that are supposedly for teenagers. And I'm, I'm hoping that this book will also 
be of interest to to adults, give, especially given that my goal really isn't to reassure real teenagers somewhere that everything's going to be okay. Often when we think about genre, sometimes we write towards genre and sometimes genre is imposed on what we write because it's a marketing tool, right? And listen, we want our books to be read, of course. Of course. Um, but, uh, but it's true that sometimes um, thinking about genre in a marketing sense is a bit of a blunt instrument, right? Mm-hmm. And so um, I've been encouraged more and more in the last couple of years by people's interest in hybrid kinds of works, mm-hmm. in crossover kinds of works, and combining genres and, and things like that. And I think that, um, yeah, I think that In the Key of Dale does that some of that kind of work because of your resistance to writing um, a kind of problem book, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to invite you to read again for us from the book. Okay, so this is um, this is a, an extract from Dale does have one friend uh, from childhood, but the, the the friendship is kind of on its last legs. Uh, so this is Jordana, who uh, after middle school ended up moving to an art school in Boston, and so she comes back periodically, and so Dale goes goes to Guelph to uh, to meet her for lunch, uh, but the dynamic between them is pretty toxic. Jordana breezed in, her eyes fixed right on me as soon as she entered, as though she'd known all along where I'd be sitting. I stared at her all-black outfit and her side ponytail and her cultural studies glasses and tried to shake off the sudden wave of weariness that hit me. I stood up and tried to look game for anything. Dally! Jordy! I hate those nicknames. They bring back memories of kids calling me dilly-dally which infuriated me when I was 11. I tried to figure out from Jordana's body language whether she expected me to hug her or not. In the end, she held my hands across the table like we were at a seance. Then she asked if we could switch places because the seat I was in would allow her to have a better energy flow. In a way, the fact that we've been friends for so long is part of the problem. We know how to push each other's buttons. As soon as I sat down again, she made a crack about sideburns that made it abundantly clear she found mine idiotic. And to get back at her, I ordered the eggplant parmigiana because I remembered she'd once told me even the word eggplant made her want to gouge her eyes out. Thankfully, the waiter kept calling me buddy and fella as he took our order, and that made me feel better. Jordana has changed a lot since the last time I saw her. She's grown into an intelligent, articulate young woman, which is one way of saying she spent most of the time talking about what she's been playing on the cello, her friends, her classes, the boy she's been hanging out with, that's the phrase she used, and what it's like to live in a boarding school full of artsy teenagers where the students outnumber the adults 30 to 1. Apparently, she's gone new age, which means she had a lot to say about her chakras. She'll be traipsing off to Vienna this summer, as much as it's possible to traipse while lugging a cello, where she'll attend a week-long string orchestra workshop that's apparently so intense that quite a few people have died from it. She told me she went online and diagnosed herself with oppositional defiant disorder. Because of her school's student-centered approach to health, now she can pretty much do whatever the fuck she wants with total impunity. Or do I mean immunity? You know what I mean. 
I found this book funny when I read it in the in the silence of my own head, uh, and I'm finding it even funnier hearing you read it. And I, oh, and, I <laughs> and I want to ask you about the fact that it's become an audiobook. <laughs> and what is it like hearing your book voiced by someone else? Clearly, you know how to voice it because the writer always does. But what is it like hearing an actor do it? Well, so the the fun part about that process is that I was not involved in any way except that they sent me three names of people and with samples said, do you, do you like can you pick one? And I did, and that was it. And then they asked me, how do you pronounce your last name? How do you say this? How do you say that? And that was it. So finally, when it came out, I listened to it, and yeah, it it was a trip. I don't listen to a lot of audiobooks because I don't know what to look at when I'm listening to an audiobook, so I'd rather I'd rather read. So I don't have a lot of experience with audiobooks, but I was, it sounds like an odd thing to say, but I was kind of blown away by it because it, it was it was so well done. And yeah, hearing somebody else say that, like it made me laugh uh, a few times, which I was a bit embarrassed about. So the, the, the audiobook actor is uh, uh, Michael Crouch. He's been doing this for years and he knows what he's doing. And he did voices for different characters. And given how quickly I it seemed to have come together i was kind of amazed at how polished it sounded and how good it was in, in terms of uh, as a performance really and one thing that i did uh notice and found fascinating is so the book is set in waterloo we say waterloo michael crouchesdale says waterloo I guess there's a Waterloo in Iowa, and that's how they say it over there. Yeah, th that was the kind of thing where it clearly never occurred to either either me or them that there might be different ways of pronouncing that. So it just it just kind of happened that way. That was it was kind of funny. Like, oh, okay, <laughs> I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't expect that. I thought, okay, my name they're gonna they're gonna butcher. They didn't. You know, it, it didn't occur to me that there were multiple ways of pronouncing Waterloo. Indeed, indeed. Okay. Well, I look forward to hearing uh, hearing some of that, though I'm just as happy to listen to you read it, quite frankly. Oh. And I want to be talking about who the readership is for this, uh, some adults, and of course, some younger readers as well. I know you were just in Vancouver a couple of weeks ago, and you talked to a grade 10 composition class. And uh, had they read any of the book? No, the book had been out for 11 days by that point. Oh, so okay. I, I knew that there was absolutely no way that they would have read it. And I think I read the beginning of the, of the novel to them, uh, but basically we just talked about writing and about, and it was a composition class. So I tried to talk about composition writing as well and answer some of their questions. And it was a great, it was a great group. The following day, I ended up doing a panel. This was at the Vancouver Writers Fest. And I did a panel with Melinda Lowe, who has a new book out, uh, A Scatter of Light. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful novel. And we both read from the, the book and answered questions. Most of the people in that audience were also teenagers who had been bussed in from, I guess, different schools. And judging by the fact that there were multiple grades represented, I guess it was more of a voluntary thing as opposed to this is happening in your class, whether, you're, whether you like it or not. When some of the young people who were there came by to ask me to sign their book, I would try to ask them, like, you know, how's it going? And... And to get a sense of, of them, then, you know, one student talked about 
really liking music and really interested in that part of it. Possibly a queer or questioning teenager was also there and possibly and, and was interested in that. And, and I think possibly too, the experience of losing a parent that might have struck a chord with, uh, with some people that I talked to. So that, that was, you know, again, thinking more about what's most important about the character rather than the audience means that you've kind of end up forgetting that, yeah, there, there is an audience and there is an audience of young people and what they're going to bring to it is their, their own experience. Yeah, indeed. Now, I also know that you have been publishing some adult fiction uh, as well. So I want to talk to you about um, other work. And I, I think that's, it's a cruel question. Hi, ah, your book's just come out. And what else do you have coming up? But, you know, I'm going to ask it anyway. Because I know you've been publishing some uh, short stories. And you were talking earlier about how Sarah's workshop got you interested in how to get it down on the, on the page in a more concentrated form. And this is um, very clearly adult fiction, a series of short stories about queer relationships, uh, employment precarity, and some of the more unsavory power dynamics that we find in academia. Mm -hmm. And is this going to be part of uh, an upcoming project, a short story collection? I think so. Not exclusively about academia, but I'm thinking of a collection of short stories that's anchored around the theme of endings, so in some cases through death, um, in other cases just professional relationships being over, um, what happens to reach the point of either facing the fact that something is over or deciding that something is, is over and it's time to, uh, to do something else. So I'm, I'm hoping that that will be a collection at some point. Many of the stories that are part of this vision started off as uh, exercises in the Sarah Selecki course. So this really is a new, not so much adult, adult fiction, but short fiction, a kind of thematically connected collection. That certainly is something, is something new for me as a writer. And uh, I read at least one reviewer who has been craving a follow-up to In the Key of Dale, uh, and a follow-up in terms of working with the same characters, with the same family, and with the same relationship uh, between Dale and Rusty, and wanting to know more. Now, it's way too early to discuss that, but have you read that review, and what did you think? Yeah, I did. So, funnily enough, one of the first questions that my agent asked me when he took me on as his client was, so what's next for these guys? And I said, nothing, it's done. And it's like, mm. <laughs> so, because so, the, well, you know, he's writing letters to his father for a reason, and that's more or less wrapped up. And he kind of says goodbye. Like, this doesn't really spoil anything, but he kind of, it, it ends. It, 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 it ends where it's supposed to end. And I thought, well, under what circumstances would he then need to undo that ending? But last spring, uh, having said that, just as I was um, reading the proofs of the novel before I went to the printer, at the, so at the end of the novel, this doesn't really ruin that much, but he and Rusty are on their way to a party, and they don't know who's going to be there. And I thought, huh, what if something happened at that party? And what if the whatever conclusion or, or resolution that Dale finds himself in at the end of the novel. What if that's undone merely hours later? So that made me start to think like, okay, that's, that's intriguing. 
but I also have to think about how would he narrate? Like, would he continue writing to his father? Does that make sense given what the book would be about? Or, or is there, might there be another way of telling the story that, that continue the narrative, but find a way of storytelling that works better for that narrative rather than, you know, continuing, Dear Pa, well, I just thought I would touch base again. I thought we were done. You know, I don't want to do something like that. So, so I think the trick we'll be figuring out, like, is there a way of believably reopening, uh, revisiting files that for Dale were kind of done? A good problem to have, I think, a very good <laughs> yeah. problem to have. Okay, I've got a final question, and I want you to respond to something that I think about a lot of the time. And I read this in Pat Schneider's excellent uh, writing instruction book, Writing Alone and with Others. And she says, one form is seldom adequate to any writer's lifetime work. That's Schneider. One form is seldom adequate to any writer's lifetime work. Now, she's a, a kind and thoughtful instructor of writing, and I respect her, but... This can be a very provocative statement. People who are very dedicated to the short story, very dedicated to the novel, and here she's saying that one form is seldom adequate. So I'm gonna ask you if you could have it your way and could explore other genres, uh, which ones would you uh, work with other than, uh, other than prose fiction? I think I established a long time ago that I am not a poet. Dale, recites two poems um, in the novel that, that I wrote as a teenager. And I kind of stopped shortly after that. I think I'm very interested in visual storytelling, right? So writing for screen. I have never really been a movie buff. I'm more interested in long-form storytelling and so television. And I'm, I'm interested in the wider varieties of, of shows that are now available, like as opposed to, you know, movie miniseries, but then ongoing series that you continue forever and ever until the ratings start to slip and then you get canceled by the network. So that's one model of longer form storytelling. But here's a series that's eight episodes and then we're done on purpose, right? That's a very different kind of storytelling. And that's a very different production model as well. So I do have, I am interested in that. Um, but you know, one, one genre that I would add, and I'm sure you would agree with me with this, Tannis, is that writing scholarship is uh, a form, fiction, academic nonfiction versus trade nonfiction. I mean, that's, that's itself a form that I think we forget that academic writing is also writing. And that, that what we're doing there is still trying to communicate with people and, and exchange ideas. But that's something that, um, yeah, I don't think fiction would be the end for me or the, the, the one mode that I would be interested in. I think there's a lot to be, to be said with, with uh, scholarship is something that I would like to continue with and, and maybe more into more trade nonfiction because to widen the audience a little bit. But yeah, that's definitely, that's definitely a genre that I would include in, uh, in ones that would be ways to, for one to make one's mark. No, I always say that scholarship actually was my, my training ground for how to write trade nonfiction, mm -hmm. right? For what, what could fit on the page, what needed to be supported, how it needed and how it needed to be supported. And those shapes are different. You know, many of the skills are the same. So yeah, yeah, I agree. Okay. I want to thank you for joining us on Watershed Writers today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. 
Great. Thanks very much for having me, Tannis. It's been great, great fun talking with you. Indeed. So In the Key of Dale is available now from the fantastic Arsenal Pulp Press, and it is stocked wherever quality books are sold. Please remember to support your local independent bookstore like Wordsworth Books in Waterloo or The Bookshelf in Guelph. Read local and buy local. In the spirit of the holiday season, our producer, Francis Roberts Riley, and myself would like to share with you our holiday message about our own personal holiday reading choices. Happy holidays from Watershed Writers. So the light gets low and uh, we all engage in some sort of holiday ritual around this time. Some of us have a little more time off and I know it's always my time of year to look back on what I've read throughout the year and I post big long lists of recommendations and uh, count up how many I've read and I'm kind of, as you know, a big reader. So I I like to look back on what I've been reading genre-wise and and of course having uh, Christmas reads as well. And do you have a Christmas read coming up? I do. In fact, I just finished it because it was the best book to read while I had the flu. Uh, (laughs) And this is also a shout out to our dog friendly show on Midtown Radio because it's about dogs and it's a specific dog, a dog called Fig, who was owned by the wonderful writer Helen Humphreys. She learned a lot from raising dogs and she finds their traits are admirable and they're also likable. But she also goes into all these other writers who had dogs. There's Virginia Woolf's uh, Grizzle. There's Thomas Hardy's Fox Terrier. And of course, Gertrude Stein, who doted on her poodle basket. So she finds the dog opened up the writing process for her um, because they live very firmly in their bodies. Um, oh, I love that book. And Helen's a, a fantastic writer and, and someone I met very early in my writing career and was very influential for me. So I'm glad you're liking that book. Something I'm reading right now that I think I will read through the holidays is Donna Morrissey's Pluck. This is her memoir, and it even has a long subtitle, A Memoir of a Newfoundland Childhood and the Raucous, Terrible, Amazing Journey to Becoming a Novelist. So it's a memoir, but also a memoir of of writing, and I'm very interested in it. I'm just a few uh, chapters in, and I think in some ways I am saving it for the holidays so I can uh, get stuck deep into it. Well, we've had a wonderful year with uh, Watershed Writers, and we've got a very loyal audience, uh, not just of uh, people who admire literature, but also people who write, which has been a wonderful surprise. Yes, it's very good, and we are grateful for our readers, and we wish them all a happy holiday season in 2022. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Watershed Writers. We have more in store for the new year, including Laurie D. Graham's poetry and Coral Andrews' new memoir. And... The multiple award-winning novelist Donna Morrissey will be in Waterloo for the winter as the Edna Stabler Writer-in-Residence, and Donna will come and talk to us about her memoir. It's called Pluck, a memoir of a Newfoundland childhood and the raucous, terrible, amazing journey to becoming a novelist. Watershed Writers comes to you every Saturday at 10 a.m. here on Midtown Radio. 
You can catch up with our episodes posted to SoundCloud. The Grand River region is packed to the gills with writers, and we want to talk to all of them, one at a time. Watershed Writers is produced in partnership with the Idea Exchange and the Waterloo Public Library. Francis Roberts Riley is our fearless leader and the show's producer. John Roscoe is our technical producer. And me, I'm the one who does the talking. I'm Tannis McDonald. Our theme music is Water by the Kitchener singer-songwriter Alicia Brilla. Join us again next week to listen local and think global. Uno.